Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. The following podcast contains explicit language. Ooh, there was a mosquito. I don't want mosquitoes around me. I don't like mosquitoes. Speaking of mosquitoes, hello, Hillary. How are you doing? He's written a lot of books about business. They all seem to end at chapter 11. These are all lies. We say lie, 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 lie. Dirty, rotten, liar. I can't lie. Hello, welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who spins around in angles like you wouldn't believe, the man who does somersaults, the man who looks like a sausage, Donald Trump. I'm Leon Nafok, your guest host for just a few more episodes while Jacob Weisberg is on vacation. Today we're going to talk about Trump's peculiar fondness for a little country called Russia and all the reasons why its leader, Vladimir Putin, might be cheering Trump's candidacy from afar. We'll be joined for that discussion by Slate contributing editor Frank Foer, who wrote a terrific cover story for us on the subject earlier this week. But first, I feel like we have to acknowledge a story that ran in the New York Times on Thursday, in which reporter Jason Horowitz asked Trump if he could commit to actually serving as president if he defeats Hillary Clinton. Trump's response, I'll let you know how I feel about it after it happens. Now, as Horowitz points out in the story, this could just be Trump playing around or giving a strategically shocking answer in order to grab some headlines. It wouldn't be the first time. But you know what? It worked on me. I'm shocked. I am. Despite everything that's come out of this guy's mouth over the past year, despite all the times he's moved the line on what a presidential candidate would never, ever say, I'm shocked. We're days away now from the GOP convention, and he's fine with stoking speculation about whether he'd do the job he's running for. It's nuts. The only thing that's more nuts are the actual words Trump used to communicate his uncertainty, which Horowitz quotes in the last paragraph of his piece. Horowitz writes, and I'm paraphrasing here ever so slightly, the only person who could truly put any doubts about Trump's intentions to rest seemed to relish the idea of keeping everyone guessing, concluding the recent conversation with the Times with a year onto something grin and a handshake across his cluttered desk. We'll do plenty of stories, Mr. Trump promised enigmatically. Okay? We'll do plenty of stories? What does that even mean, we'll do plenty of stories? It reminds me of a moment a few years back when a little boy made national news thanks to his father, who tricked the national media into thinking he had climbed into a homemade balloon and gone flying to the sky at high speed. You may remember him as Balloon Boy. Now, after Balloon Boy was found safe and sound, his fame-chasing dad brought him along with his whole family onto a talk show. 
And right there on live TV, Balloon Boy accidentally told the truth. And I quote, you said we did this for the show. Balloon Boy's dad lives on, in my mind at least, as an icon of our country's deranged obsession with celebrity. Something tells me that he and Trump would get along famously. Okay, that's all I wanted to say about that. Let's do the tweets. Taxpayers are paying a fortune for the use of Air Force One on the campaign trail by President Obama and crooked Hillary Clinton. A total disgrace. With Hillary and Obama, the terrorist attacks will only get worse. Politically correct fools won't even call it what it is, radical Islam. I don't think the voters will forget the rigged system that allowed crooked Hillary to get away with murder. Come November 8th, she's out. Crooked Hillary Clinton lied to the FBI and to the people of our country. She's so guilty. But watch, her time will come. Convention speaker scheduled to be released tomorrow. Let today be devoted to crooked Hillary and the rigged system under which we live. Joining us now on the line is Frank Foer. Frank is a contributing editor at Slate, and today we'll be talking about what I feel like is a sort of natural follow-up to the piece he wrote a few months ago, and which we talked about here on Trumpcast, about Paul Manafort. Frank, it's great to have you back on the show. Thanks. So, Frank, you argue in this piece that Vladimir Putin wants Donald Trump to be president. You write that if Putin wanted to concoct the ideal candidate to serve his purposes, his laboratory creation would look a lot like Donald Trump. So I want to start off by establishing motive here. Why does Putin want Donald Trump to be president? In what way would that serve Putin's interest? Well, Putin has a very broad political strategy for the West, which is that he's tried across Eastern Europe and a bit in Western Europe and now it seems possibly in the United States to want to uh, install leaders and promote parties that share an agenda highly simpatico to his own, which is uh, the weakening of NATO, the weakening of the European Union, and generally trying to loosen the bonds of solidarity in the West so that as Putin tries to protect his own sphere of influence or possibly even expand his own sphere of influence, he doesn't face the possibility of the West collectively confronting him. So that, that's, his, that's his broad aim. But more specifically in the United States, he really hates the Obama administration. He really dislikes Hillary Clinton. And along comes this guy who praises Putin as one of the best leaders in the world and who says that we should take money away from NATO and use it towards our own domestic purposes and who cheers Brexit and can more broadly has a, has a political agenda that would weaken the internal cohesion of the United States by selling racial divisions and who says he's going to refuse to pay debt of the country back on the terms that our creditors demand. And so Trump, in many ways that I think are would be obvious to a shrewd thinker like Vladimir Putin would weaken the United States, not just in terms of its ability or willingness to project power around the world, but it, he would he would make the country a weaker country at its core. 
Can you put Putin's enthusiasm for a Trump presidency in, in, in the context of Putin's other favorite candidates around the world? Like in the piece, you kind of describe some of the other, you know, campaigns or initiatives that the Kremlin has championed. Uh, so it's a little bit of a, it, it's something that's happened and it took people a while to start to connect the dots. But I think one of the, the key moments was when Marine Le Pen was caught taking a loan from a Russian-friendly bank. And that raised all sorts of questions. And she started to treat the question in a fairly explicit sort of way where she started to plead with Putin to fund her candidacy. So thanks to some reporting, people were able to establish that the French far right was taking at least loans from Vladimir Putin. And then you look across the map of Europe, it's it's hard to say precisely how, how the Russians have interfered and provided patronage in each specific instance, but they've been fairly explicit in trying to build kind of a far-right international, kind of an axis of like-minded far-right political parties across Western Europe. And so there is, there's clearly a pattern of Putin supporting candidates who are exactly like Donald Trump. All right, well, so let's talk about what Putin and his allies are actually doing to deliver Trump the presidency. Um, as we've talked about on this podcast before, Putin has sort of stopped short of actually praising Trump, right? There was this discussion about what he meant by calling him bright, whether that meant he was saying he was smart or whether he was saying he was flamboyant and colorful. But I think he, he clarified a statement later on, like a couple of months ago or weeks ago, and kind of made clear that he was saying that he's talented, but but let's not let's not go overboard. What kind of help is he actually providing him, and what are the what what forms of support have you have you found? So a lot of the evidence is really highly circumstantial, but one thing is that there's Russian propaganda in the form of Russia Today, which is a television network which promotes the Kremlin line and various blogs and other things that are part of a propaganda apparatus that the Russians use as a tool to try to advance their interests in the West. And that's gone fairly full throttle for Trump and is fairly vicious towards Hillary Clinton. Yeah. Um, that's one thing. The second, a little bit murkier, is that there are cybersecurity experts who have determined that the servers of the Democratic National Committee and the Clinton Foundation were hacked by Russian intelligence services. So the question is then, what were the Russian intelligence services trying to do with the material? One common tactic that foreign intelligence services take is to just try to go phishing on um, these servers in order to try to get a better read on candidates to see if they'll be, they'll be suitable president as far as their national interests are concerned. But it seems like in this instance, the Russians were trying to operationalize their hacks because as soon as they were caught hacking the computers, the material from the various servers that they hacked started to appear on sites across the Internet. And, and that's been a tactic that the Russians have used in the past, is that they'll mess around with divulging juicy material that they've hacked. And they may be doing it in kind of a tentative sort of way where they're testing the water. So that's that's another important piece of evidence. And then thirdly, this is highly circumstantial. As we've discussed in this program, Trump's campaign manager is a guy called Paul Manafort, who worked for several Russian oligarchs who were very, very, very close to Putin, is in a circle, and worked for 
the Ukrainian president, Viktor Yanukovych. And his big accomplishment as a political consultant was bringing Ukraine into Putin's sphere of influence. And then if we look deeper down the roster of campaign advisors, there's a number of people who are on the payroll of Gazprom and who've worked for the Kremlin in other capacities. And so you take you take all of this in aggregate and you look at, at, at Donald Trump's own motives in this campaign, which is another important line of yeah. inquiry. In we'll, the get, we'll get to that in a second. Yep. Uh, it's not it's not slam dunk, but there's a lot of evidence that shows that Putin is experimenting and nibbling and trying to figure out how he can best play his hand in this election to try to tip it in Trump's direction. I got the sense from your from your piece that that the efforts that you've just been describing, circumstantial as they may be, are part of a sort of broader campaign to like wield influence in the U.S. And you mentioned that Russia has hired fancy firms to craft strategy and donated money to think tanks and built a uh, what you call a small coterie of wonks sympathetic to their leader's view of the world. To what extent has, has this initiative succeeded? I mean, what, what does the Kremlin have to show for their trouble? Not a whole lot. Um, the Kremlin's been working on this case for almost a decade. They hired a firm called Ketchum, who they divorced during the Crimean invasion. And there are, there are think tanks in Washington that are more sympathetic to the, the Russian view of the world. And there are scholars who are sympathetic to the Russian view of the world. It's hard to know exactly how much money is flowing where, just given the opaque nature of think tanks in universities. But it's clear that their place, like the Council on Foreign Relations got money from one of the oligarchs who worked with Paul Manafort. There was a center at Harvard that got a lot of money for it. So the money is flowing around. But there is a very strong bipartisan consensus in this country that Putin is not a friend of the United States and that when Russia invaded Ukraine, it, it wasn't like there was a whole lot of objection to imposing sanctions and taking a rhetorically hard line with Russia. You get the sense from the piece that, that, that Trump is kind of like a perfect patsy for Putin for various reasons. Tell us about his track record on Russia in terms of his business dealings and why those uh, and why, why those business dealings have made him such a easy target. Now, I do describe uh, Trump as generally an easy mark in the piece, but I do think that here they're mutually using one another, that Trump has, since the 1980s, a strong desire to build buildings in Moscow and Petersburg and Sochi and other places. And Russian officials have cultivated Trump as a builder, and Trump has, in turn, cultivated Russian officials. And in the Trump view of the world, his own business interests and his policies are completely jumbled. I mean, when he takes a, when he takes a position, he's never going to take a position that's going to be against his business interests. Usually there's some sort of sneaky business interest that underlies it. And, and, and just the way that he's run the campaign more generally, he's merged the Trump brand with the Trump campaign. And so I think he was praising Russian politicians even before Putin came to power in order to try to erect a Trump Tower Moscow. Uh-huh. Um, and, and it just never came to fruition. But it did create a kind of a virtuous cycle for Trump. So he would come over to Russia. He would he would unveil big plans to build something. And those plans would never come to fruition, 
yet the Russian media would, would fawn over him and the Russian elite became enamored with him because they liked his gaudy style. And so Russian elites would buy up units in the Trump buildings in Panama and Florida in Toronto and in Soho. And there were Russian investors who began to sink money into his various projects around the world. And so has that predisposed Trump to kind of favor or to like to want Russia to love him and to, for him to kind of... I, mean, I, I don't want to go too far in this, <laughs> but you know, the question of why Trump runs, is running for president is an interesting one because yeah. it wasn't clear at the start that he would have a plausible candidacy. And he also had a lot at stake in terms of his brand for running for president. And I think as he analyzed things, I think he probably said to himself, look, at the very least in this campaign, I have a chance to advance my business in Russia by sucking up to the to Putin and by taking a hard line against NATO and the EU. All right. Uh, Frank Foer is a contributing editor at Slate. Everybody should go read his piece, a cover story uh, over at Slate this week. Frank, thanks so much for uh, coming on. Oh, my pleasure. That is it for today's episode of Trumpcast. The show is produced by Jason DeLeon, an unabashed, unrepentant Kremlin plant. Slate's executive producer is Steve Lichtai, whose investments in Russia are limited to a single bowl of cabbage stew. Andy Bowers, who has vowed to move to Russia if Trump wins, is our chief content officer. Special thanks to John D. Domenico, our voice of Donald Trump. I'm Leon Nafok. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. The only people who are not interested in being the VP pick are the people who have not been asked.